Welcome, dear listeners, in the very first episode of the Slovak Ancestry podcast in 2022. And also, I would like to wish you that this year will be happier, more successful and especially healthier than the previous one. My name is Michal Razus and this podcast is created with the support of podcast industry. Today, it is my big honor and pleasure to welcome in our podcast Professor Michael Kopanic, adjunct professor of history at the University of Maryland Global Campus. Michael is also writing articles and books concerning Slovakia and Slovak history and working with the various Slovak organizations such as CGSI, Jednota or Global Slovakia. Well, welcome Michael. I know that uh, besides you are a great fan of Slovak culture, history and you are the promoter of, of Slovakia. You also speak uh, very good Slovak. So how did you learn and uh, what was the process of the learning Slovak language? Okay, when I was a child, I didn't learn Slovak. I just knew a few expressions that my mother would say, and I knew how to make the sign of the cross, and I knew a few words like dobre and foods, of course, like pirohi, halushki. I think my upbringing was similar to, to many other uh, Slovak American second generation people. Because our our parents didn't need see a need to learn Slovak, even though that my, my my mother when she came from Slovakia, she lived in a little a village called Riknava in eastern Slovakia, and she came over when she was almost 17, and they were very poor there. She could only come over because uh, a relative sent money. But uh, I wanted to learn Slovak because when we went to my bubas, the language was exclusively. That's my grandmother, Bubba, is Slovak. And uh, I couldn't understand the adults. The children would speak English with each other, but the adults were all speaking Slovak. So my interest in history coincided with my interest in uh, Slovak history. Uh, and I had been studying German and was interested in German history. That's where my emphasis was during my undergraduate years at Youngstown State and even in my master studies at the University of Notre Dame. But i wanted to learn Slovak, and the problem always was, how do you learn it? Because my parents were really not teachers. So to learn formal Slovak, I had to try to find a place where Slovak was taught, and Slovak history was taught. And so I went to the University of Toronto to find, start my uh, graduate studies, PhD graduate studies. But I found out they wanted me to uh, study German history because I was stronger there. And when they refused to let me take a course that was going on at the same time as a uh, German history course, I tried to transfer to the University of Pittsburgh where they taught Slovak. But in Toronto, they only taught Czech. So I studied with a a young lady who was a recent emigre from Slovakia, and uh, she helped me once a week for a couple hours to, to, to learn Slovak. So that was my first training by somebody outside my family besides trying to learn on my own, which is nearly impossible. Uh, and then uh, when I went to the University of Pittsburgh, I studied under František Galen at first. He was there temporarily, and then several years later, because I left a couple years after I I'd started at Pitt, came back, and I studied with Verona Horvatova. But uh, I really learned Slovak best and learned how to converse when I was in Slovakia. It took about five or six months to be comfortable speaking Slovak. And it's a, a 
a very difficult language for for English speaking peoples because the grammar is so complicated and get just getting used to the pronunciation takes time. But the, the easy thing about Slovak is everything is pronounced exactly as it looks, unlike English. But English, from what I understand from Slovaks and other foreigners, is much easier to learn than the other way around. Slovak is a, a tough language to learn. That's probably true. It is uh, probably the common story of the American Slovaks that they are kind of losing the contact in the second or third generation. But I have to say that you are a bright exception. Your skill skill of the Slovak language is really very fluent and I had a chance to meet you several times and I could just speak with you really very fluently. And what is more, not just Slovak, but also the Sharish and speech dialects, right? That you are speaking. Yeah. Tak, mo- môžem rečovať tak trošku. Tá dakus mi povieme na východnom Slovensku. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, we have also some Slovak listeners, I believe, so they will understand. But we will uh, switch back to English because most of the people that are listening to, to the Slovak Ancestry podcast are English-speaking people. Dobre, môže byť. Thank you. Anyway, uh, so you have some Slovak roots. Uh, uh, you mentioned Riknava, and is, are there any other villages involved? When did your ancestors came come well, to, my, Slovak, to America? My grandfather, uh, maternal, maternal grandfather, was from uh, Kluknava, and my maternal grand Baba, you know, grandmother was from Hrišovce. And on my father's side, his family was from Ruskinovce, which is a community that no longer exists. It was destroyed after. World War II, the Russians used it for target practice. It was a mili- It's in a military, the Yavor military area outside of Kezmarok, just east of Kezmarok. Uh, but he moved to, uh, before he came to the United States, he moved to Harihovca because he saw a newspaper ad for a shepherd and he <laughs> took applied for the job and got it. And he was a shepherd just north of Harihovca. And that's where he met my Baba, and uh, her name was Juliana, and they got married in the church in Harihovca, which I've been to many times. And do you know how did they learn about the opportunity to get to the United States? Is this clear, or was it just some kind of the chain migration that other people were leaving, well, so they decided to do it as well? Uh, on In my family, there were connections already. So on my paternal side, my Zedo grandfather, he had uh, some relatives, cousins that were over here. And so they got him a job in Etna, PA, working in the forest, forestry work. So he went there and he was there for a few years and then he went, he moved to Youngstown, Ohio. So there, there were precedents. And when he traveled over, he also tra- traveled over with somebody from his village of uh, Harihovca, which was Palma Fala at the time. That's the Hungarian expression for the village. And on my maternal side, my Zedor grandfather, he had relatives. His, his father actually went to the United States in the late 1880s and stayed there for about five or I don't know the exact year of his return, but one of his sons was born in 1892 in the United States in Pennsylvania so he obviously was in Pennsylvania not outside of Connellsville and uh, he returned to Slovakia saved some money and bought some land 
and uh, my Zeto or grandfather was born in 1895. And he came over during the interwar period, but he already had relatives over in the United States because his brothers moved over to Slovakia and he had cousins there. So when he came over, his cousin got him a job in Grayston, Pennsylvania, which is in a mine that's in Indiana County. And But he, he didn't like the mine, so he stayed there for a year and then he moved to Youngstown, Ohio. Again, he had relatives and connections there, but... My family told me that he also went to Toledo and he also worked in the uh, the car factories in Michigan, a car factory in Michigan. They're not sure which one, but uh, he lost his job during the Depression and then went back to Youngstown where he had relatives. And then my my mother and, and uh, sister and Bubba didn't come over until 10 years later. Because he didn't send any money, and they had to get money from a relative. So it was not a great arrangement. <laughs> it is very interesting how the people, when they move from the old country to the new country, they are slowly adapting a new language, new customs, new habits. Uh, but did your family in the core somehow stayed uh, connected to the Slovak culture? Because obviously language was slowly disappearing. But what about maybe some other traditions like food or maybe uh, songs and things like this? Well, with Baba, she she never learned English. I mean, I, I don't even remember her saying any English words. She used to call me Molly Micha, which means little Michael, because my father was Michael. Molly Micha. <laughs> uh, so she never learned it. And she belonged. See, on the west side of Youngstown, where she lived, it seemed like half the people were Slovak and she went to a Slovak church and they had Slovak mass every day at 6 a.m., which she, she went to continuously. And I've had priests verify that that told me, yo, she was always there. Uh, and my, my Zeno, he, he learned some English. He had to, cause he worked at United States steel and he, he, I mean, he was close enough to work just a little over a mile. He'd walk every day to work just down the hill. So, I mean, they lived in a Slovak community. <clears throat> a good number of their neighbors were Slovak and they even had a Slovak border, I found out. So <laughs> mm -hmm. that was typical of people. And my, and my father's family had a Slovak border as well. Were they able to keep the connections with the old country, with Slovakia, or was it uh, disconnected because of maybe communism or wars? How was that? <laughs> The war disrupted everything for sure. And then the communist uh, takeover put a, a lid on ties. I'm not, sh I don't have any letters. They didn't save letters. But my mother started contact with her old, her former best friend in Slovakia in the 1970s. I think after 68, in the late 60s and early 70s, people started going to Slovakia on visits. They had to be politically acceptable and not involved, not emigres. But but even people that were born in Slovakia, say for instance, before World War II, they did allow them back. They had to have visas and they had to exchange ten dollars a day. But for instance, on my wife's side, and she's half Slovak, about three of her relatives went over to Slovakia in the early 70s, and then uh, even my mother, she went back and. 
she was writing to her friend in the 70s and she got invited to a wedding. So she went back for a wedding in 1981, actually uh, a year before I went over there for, for, for a year to do my international research exchange uh, doctoral studies. Wow. So you actually been to Slovakia for a year in 1980s? Yeah, I was the only American there for a year. And I think a couple years before me and about two or three years after me, there were no other Americans there for a year. Wow. Did you actually had an experience maybe with some secret police? Did you have the impression that you were oh, yeah. spied or something police. followed? Well, because I went, I went to uh, the West about six times, and it's such it was such a bureaucracy to go from Slovakia. Even if I had what's called a Tervali pobit, uh, a long stay permission, uh, you had to get things signed and stamped by all these different agencies the, the university the secret police uh, where you stayed i think there were about five it took me all day virtually to to get everything done every time i wanted to leave uh, the bureaucracy was incredible and then of course at the border they stop you and serve you and coming back do the same thing so they make it a real hassle so during that year you had a quite a good chance to learn much more about slovakia rather than people that are just coming here for a week or so <laughs> How how was your experience? What did you see and where did you go during that visit? Well, I, I stayed at the student housing dormitory. It's called Druzhba. It's on the shore of the, the Danube River. And uh, I mean, there it was mostly Slovaks there. So I made some Slovak friends. I, I really didn't make, I made a few lasting friends, but uh, one friend that I didn't make, and I, I can't even remember where we first met, but he was always afraid of the secret police, and we'd make arrangements to, to meet somewhere secretly. And eventually they found out, you know, that he was friends with me, and he says, oh, we can't meet anymore. They know, they know everything. So, <laughs> but we did manage to meet more after that. But, you know, since the revolution, I don't know, he didn't, after 1989, he didn't keep, I did visit him once, but uh, he didn't keep contact with me. He was a, a, a medical doctor and he took me to his hata and uh, helped get my car fixed by one of his friends. So we were friends with one another, but it didn't continue after 1989. I, I did keep friends with a journalist who wrote for a magazine and uh, we've kept in contact especially over the last few few years and I visited her in 2018 she was interesting because <laughs> she uh, lived in an apartment a beat in in, in uh, Slovakia and everything in her apartment was white she because she said go vonku everything outside there is dirty in my my place my home my apartment it's clean it's clean and white and it, it was a really her way of protesting communism and the way they had to live this life there after the revolution how many times you visited slovakia then and also how did the change how did the things change well i first visited in, after the revolution in 1990 and there wasn't a, oh, a whole lot of change. Well, when I, I went there, I was welcomed by the person who happened to be the vice president <laughs> because he had worked in the archives. His name was uh, Alexander Varga. He was 
uh, Magyar, Hungarian. So his name was Shandor, but in Slovak, that's Alexander. And he actually had me picked up when I came and he <laughs> and found a place for me to stay and took care of some of some of my expenses, at least, and, and talked to me about some of the changes that had been happening. So uh, that it was interesting. And, but I spend most of my time outside visiting my wife's relatives who I stayed with during uh, holidays and during several visits when I lived there in 82, 83. But what's interesting is my uh, wife's relative took me to Harihovce and uh, there we, he asked the local priest, is there, was there anybody named Kopanichak in the, the village? Because that's where my grandfather was, was from. And we found out that there were a couple. And so we went to this one lady, Maria Gronjak, her, she was Kopanichakova, uh, maiden name. And her, her family was also Ruskanovtsa. And so we figured out we were distant cousins. And so she's been like my, I don't know, my, 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 my closest Slovak relative since then. And then I went again in 1995, I took a group over and then I stayed, I was the leader of a tour group and I stayed an extra week with, with relatives. And then I also went over, I took my parents over in 1997. So we were there a couple weeks. And then I went in 98, I took my two children over with me and led a group. And again, the tour was two weeks, but we stayed an extra week and they got to know uh, some of our distant relatives. And let's see. And then I went in, my mother died in 2000. So I didn't get back over until 2001. So I was there in 2001, 2002. We took my father over there. 2003, I was there. 2004, 2006, <laughs> 2009. So it was almost every two years. So it seems That's, that you really have a very close connection to Slovakia uh, and very intensive contacts with, with it for almost right. all your adult life. And maybe we can speak now a little bit about your current activities because you are a professor, you are a very active member of CGSI, you are uh, publishing articles and, and writing the books, etc. So what are the activities uh, in connection to Slovakia that you are currently doing? Well, I just might mention that I, I did the first translation and helped edit uh, a book called Illustrated Slovak History, and it was written by Anton Spiech. And I did the first translation, but I'm not a professional translator, so some other people went over it as well. But I did the initial. The initial work is the toughest. <laughs> uh, and I also uh, helped edit the English of the book published by the Czechoslovak Genealogical Society. That's the, the book on Slovaks in America, and that was by Konstantin Chulin, because the English translation was very rough, and uh, it, needed, it needed a lot of work. So I did that for CGSI, so I'm listed as, one of the, as an editor there. Michael, I know that you are a professor and you are very educated, what was your main uh, topics or main fields that you were interested uh, in during your your career? Well, I was mainly as interested in the, uh, in Slovak history to find out what it was like when my grandparents and and mother lived there, and that's why I wanted to pick a topic that was 
acceptable in communist Czechoslovakia. So, uh, and I wanted to live there so I would learn the culture and the language by getting an international exchange grant. And so that's one of the reasons I, instead of doing Stefanik, who was my original goal, I, and I don't think that would be acceptable to the communists because they, Stefanik strongly disliked the communists and then had some harsh words to say about Bolshevism. I decided to pick a, a worker's topic because I was interested in what worker conditions were like in Slovakia, how industrialized it was, and why people like my grandfather lost their job. And then, you know, there I learned about how the unions were organized, how Slovakia was de-industrialized after it became part of Czechoslovakia, and, uh, you know, what workers were trying to do to ameliorate their situation uh, in hard times, because the Czech part recovered a lot easier than the Slovak part. And Slovakia never really, it only started to recover by 1928, 29, where uh, gross products started to pick up and employment started to spread. And then the depression came and it was, you know, uh, you know, back in the woods again for the, for the, for the Slovaks and no jobs. So that was my focus. And, and the communists wouldn't let me look at anything after 1929. So it kind of put a lid on my studies. I also saw the article that you recently had about the Spanish flu, which actually has a quite a connection to present days that we are living So the epidemies yes. were not that exceptional as as we maybe think. However, it's it right. has been hundred years since we had the big one. But uh, can you see any parallels between back then and today's maybe? Well, there are lots of parallels between the Spanish flu and uh, today. But back then, we didn't have the medical ad uh, knowledge that they had. But you had the the shutdown of restaurants and uh, the closing of businesses. Uh, but most places in Slovakia stayed open, but they had to go through cleaning during the middle of the day, restaurants, for instance, and then at night, too. And they closed down for several hours after lunch. So uh, it seems like today the the measures have been more extreme as far as closing down restaurants and, and, and some businesses. So more things stayed open back then. Uh, but the big difference between the Spanish flu and COVID-19 is that COVID-19 is most lethal when it uh, affects people who already are in weak conditions or are older, over 60. And uh, I even lost my my relative over there. Her husband, who was 89, got they all got COVID, their whole family, and he died just last month. But the Spanish flu hit mo mainly young people ages particularly 18 to 35 and it killed in the United States the official statistics are somewhere around 580,000 but I've talked to some scholars in fact one at the University of Maryland where I work global global campus and she's done research on California and she said the figures are way underestimated and she she's thinking they're more like have been about 800,000 uh, who died in the US Because when when somebody dies and you figure the cause of their death, you know it could be multiple things, but it's the the fact that so many young people died is what is shocking about the Spanish flu. So 
you know, when somebody dies when they're they're 89 or 84, it's not as tragic as people that are 25 and 30, and you know, they might have children dying. So you had a lot of orphans, for instance, created uh, after the war because of uh, the Spanish flu. You. You are also the following the social media, and you are very active. You have some uh, groups, so right, maybe if you can right. mention these, uh, it's very interesting. Right. I follow both of your groups, and I'm really enjoying the contributions. Right. Uh, well, I'll mention that I I've been writing for Jednota, the first Catholic Slovak Union's newspaper, because I've looked at all the newspapers, and I thought theirs was the best done since the 1980s, late 80s, and then since 1995, I've had a regular column there. And uh, my work is quite extensive, and I, I do document where I get my sources, etc. But with social media, I was writing for a, a learned Slovak group through Comenius University. And when I published or put down some religious things, I got some censorship. So I said, this is, you know, I'm going to start my own group. So I started learning the Slovak language and culture on Facebook in, I guess it was June 2020. And I also started one called Slovak History. And Slovak History has over 2,000 people in it. Learning the Slovak language and culture has over 1,000. And I'm getting new people all the time. In order to get on these sites, you have to say why you want to be on the site. And I look at what other groups you're on, uh, Anybody that's in the audience that is interested could apply for entrance. It's, you know, I could say, as long as you have Slovak back background, you don't have to be Slovak, but just interested in, in Slovak studies, Slovak culture. And, and they're pretty active groups. I mean, you have a lot of people in them. Also, we are meeting in the conferences of uh, CGSI. Of course, yes. uh, the last year it wasn't possible due to COVID, so hopefully the next years will be more free and, uh, and we will all be able to meet and, and to reconnect. What do you think, what is the future of the American Slovaks and of Slovakia maybe and uh, our mutual connection? Well, see, fresh immigrants help because they help keep the language alive and the culture. And most Americans just have a smattering and don't get interested in, in the culture usually into, intensely until they get older, trying to learn the language. But And it's a struggle. But the, the thing that's carried on the most, I think, is Slovak cooking. You know, people like halupki, that's stuffed cabbages, and halushki, and uh, pierogi, which are pierogi in Polish. Most, most Americans know what pierogi are but they don't know Padohi, <laughs> but we Slovaks do. And some people carry on some of the customs around Christmas time or Easter, like Easter blessing baskets or the Vilja Mill at Christmas time. So food's kind of the center. There used to be Slovak churches, so people would have a Slovak mass, but those have really all died out in the last 20 years or so. Uh, except for uh, St. John the Palmacine in New York City, which broadcasts on uh, TV Lux New York. So that broadcasts every Sunday or on, on holy days. I, we, I, uh, we always had a connection between religion because the, the religious communities were kind of the centers of Slovak culture. And the Slovak American churches used to have Slovak priests who knew Slovak and were trained in Slovak, either in Slovakia or over here. 
is they taught Slovak here. And of course, the Slovak Benedictines in Cleveland have, have helped perpetuate that over the years. But it's turning more and more to English. So it's it's been a process. I guess it's natural because we're living in another country and Slovak such a difficult language. And it's only spoken by a little over 5 million people. So it's not like German or English or Chinese, which, in which millions, millions and millions speak. Well, hopefully we all will be able to keep at least a little piece of our identity, no matter which part we are going to choose. And uh, I would like to thank you for coming to our podcast. It was great to have you here. And I, I believe that we are going to meet again in Slovakia or in America. This was Professor Michael Kopanić in Slovak Ancestry podcast. Thank you, Michael, and goodbye. Goodbye. Spohom. Dovidenia. Dovidenia. You were listening to Slovak Ancestry podcast with Michal Rázus. This podcast was created with the support of the podcast industry and Slovak Ancestry, genealogy research and heritage tours in Slovakia. You can find us at Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. If you have an interesting family story and you would like to share it, feel free to contact me via email in the description.